The scripture reading for today is Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. Please turn there in your Bibles with me now. Again, that's Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness, and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Holy Trinity downtown. Pastor John Dennis here, great to see all of you virtually at this moment. Uh, 
Looking forward to worshiping with you. We are in a series today that I'm real excited about called Authentic Christianity, Becoming the Church. And the premise of what we're talking about over the last number of weeks is that there has been a tremendous loss, and rightly so, in our culture of the credibility of Christianity because it has become politicized, because it has become polarized, and uh, there even now, where, where it seemed like after uh, the death of George Floyd that there was this kind of uprising, globally even, where people seem to be almost united around the need to speak for justice and speak for truth and speak on behalf of the powerless, it seems as if now there's almost been a pendulum swing the other direction. And so those who were sort of in the middle politically seem like they're either moving left or moving right. There's a division between genders. There's a division between um, the old and the young. There's a division between those who seem to have power and those who don't have power. There's a division even um, in churches, as churches seem to split apart. The question is, is there anything about authentic Christianity that could unite the genders, that could unite the races, that could unite the old and the young, that could unite the economically deprived and those who have financial resources. And in one sense, the book of Acts is a clarion call from the author Luke to say, if you want to see how the world can be changed, this is a kind of manual to see how the world can be changed. In other words, if you want to understand what authentic Christianity is, you have to go back to the origins. I was reading this week from an author whose name is Andrew Roots, and he's talking about this being the age of authenticity, that we are all seeking that which is authentic. He tells the story of being at a conference in Nashville and on one of the breaks going with some of the other conference participants to go to find an authentic Nashville bar with authentic music. And so they were in the center of Nashville with all the tourists and they felt like they needed to get away from the tourists. And he's, so he is, this guy's a sort of philosopher and theologian. He starts asking the question, well, what is authenticity really? What is it that, that we want to get away from that, which is false, that which is superficial and shallow. And he was reflecting on when they find, finally found the right bar. And he starts talking about our culture and the way that our culture has come to embrace those people who can just tell it like it is, those people who are perfectly candid. And uh, one of the ways to think about what it means to be authentic is to go back to the origins of something. If you can understand where something has come from, then you understand its kind of true origin. That's why uh, to be a little uh, perhaps flippant for a moment. That's why all of the comic book characters have their origin stories embedded within them, from Spider-Man to Iron Man to Batman. You go back in their history. Even Michelle Obama has a had her biography is called Becoming Michelle Obama, and it has to do with who. What are the origins of her identity? So what I want to do with you today is to, to probe the origins of the identity of the church. How did the church become the church? What is Luke telling us in these verses in uh, Acts 2, 14 to 31, 
41 about what it really means to become the church. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through just four sections. There's four movements in this passage that uh, are all marked by Peter addressing the crowd, quoting something from the, something from the Old Testament, and then explaining it. I'm going to give you the four headings so that you can follow along. Number one is, here's the header is, this is that. Peter stands up and he says, this that's happening now is that which was predicted. That's verses 14 to 21. And then he says, this was planned. The events that were happening, the events that recently happened, um, not more than seven weeks ago, were planned. So this is that, this was planned. And then this is he. The one who has arrived is the one. That's verses 29 to 36. 14 to 21, 22 to 28, 29 to 36. And then this changes everything. If this is actually that, if this was planned, if this is he, then that changes everything. And that's the, that is the uh, title of the sermon for today. This changes everything. And I'm going to ask if you would bow with me in prayer and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have come to empower the church and to unite the church in its witness to the world around what seems to be a powerful and yet powerless Savior. May his name be lifted up today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. The central idea that I want to try to show you from the text today is that the Spirit came in a key moment in history to empower the church, yes, but also to unite the church around this one central figure who is at once powerful and also powerless. Spirit came at a key moment in history in order to empower the church, but also to unite the church around a powerless, powerful figure. So let's take a look first at verses 14 to 21. And here's what it says, it says, this that's happening now is that. In other words, that the arrival of the messianic age that was predicted previously will come with the widespread dispersal of the Holy Spirit. What was predicted will, will come with the widespread dispersal of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14, it says, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. So there have been 120 together, the the spirit had come with power like a rushing wind, flames upon the heads of people. And Peter stands up, two great words at the beginning of this passage, but Peter. And the reason why they're beautiful is because previously Peter had denied the Lord Jesus. And now he is about to witness with tremendous power. He has been utterly revolutionized by the coming of the spirit. He lifts up his voice. He addresses them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. That's the first of sort of three markers that show the sections of the text. Men of Judea and then men of Israel and then brothers is what he says. Let it be known to you and give ear to my words for these people are not drunk. And that is a reference back to verse 13 previously where people say, what's happening? How are these people all speaking in their native tongues, in our native tongues, languages that they did not, did not know, are they drinking new wine? And Peter sort of humorously says, you know what? It's only nine o'clock in the morning. This can't be new wine. They're not drunk. Who gets drunk? 
all together at nine in the morning. And then he says, but this is that, okay? Our text, your text probably says, but this is what, the more literal translation is, this is that that was uttered through the prophet Joel. And what Peter does is then he quotes Joel chapter two, verses 28 to 32, which you're welcome to look up if you'd like to, of the day of the coming of the Lord and what it will look like when, when God comes with tremendous power. What he's saying is that the beginning of the last days, that is the time between the, the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and his return, those days are called the last days, which is an interesting correction to some of the teaching that you've received, which may be that the last days are some somehow way out there and coming. We live, according to the New Testament, in the last days. And here's what he says. He says that in what's called the Messianic age, the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, there will be a widespread outpouring of the Spirit that will not only empower the church, it will unite the church, and that people of every type, every gender, and every ethnicity, and every economic standing, and every age will receive the power of the Spirit so that they might do ministry. Listen to the pairs that are there. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour, my, pour out my Spirit on all flesh. He says, and on your and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That's both genders. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. That is all ages. And even on my male servants and female servants, those who are in economic cap captivity, those who were discriminated against, shall lose their chains, so to speak. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And then he uh, references in Joel chapter two, these tremendous wonders that would come. And when Jesus came into the world, what Peter is saying, he's, he's saying he came with tremendous miracles, doing things that, that were of incredible power. If you remember when Jesus was crucified, it became very dark. There was a thunder, there was a, an earthquake and, and uh, people came out of their graves and amazing things happened. So he says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Uh, this is what happened at Jesus's death and resurrection. Um, recently this week, it, there was a headline that said wine country uh, it's like God has no sympathy in the San Francisco Chronicle. But there's this prediction that days will come of tremendous horror, that they would come. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to, to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And then here's the clincher. Here's the conclusion of the Joel passage is this. And it shall come, come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, the day of the universal empowering of the Spirit will also come with the universal possibility of salvation. And all the key is, is to know what the name of the Lord is. So in one sense, what Peter is doing is showing what the name of the Lord is. But I don't want you to miss this, that every sector of society is going to be enriched by the Spirit. Previously before that, only kings, only priests, only prophets had the Spirit upon them. But God had planned in the Messianic age to pour out his Spirit on all factions of all people. In other words, what can unite the factions of age and gender and ethnicity and economics? And the answer is 
The Holy Spirit, that's his role, is to create this multifaceted, multi-economic, multi-ethnic global church in which God will dwell by his spirit. This is Peter's restoration to ministry, and oh, how beautiful it is. It's also the reversal of the Tower of Babel when they tried to build a tower to heaven, and God dispersed them in Genesis chapter 11 and gave them all languages. This is now being undone, and a tower of God's people are being built together. We sang this just a few minutes ago. Oh, your name. Oh, your name is a light in the darkness. Oh, your name is the name of truth. Oh, your name, oh, your name, how majestic is your name. You see, the point of this whole passage is that when the Spirit comes, it, he will show what name is the name of salvation. Some of you are mourning right now because of the verdict of Breonna Taylor. Some of you watched the debate this week and thought like me, is, how is it possible that these are the two best leaders that we have to offer in the United States to lead us in this next generation? So much bitterness, so much vitriol, so much spite. What this text is saying is to Holy Trinity, when you see spite, may you seek the spirit. When you see bitterness, may you seek the blessings of Christ, which are poured out upon us. What this text is saying is that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The spirit is for all countries. The spirit is for all gen genders. The spirit is for all ethnicities. The name of the Lord in this passage we're going to see is Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is for men and for women and for old and for young and for poor and for rich. Every part of society will be enriched by the Spirit. Peter is saying this is that, the predicted coming of the Messianic age. That's verses 14 to 21. The second thing that Peter says in this sermon is this was planned. And he moves from a quotation from Joel to a quotation of David. He's now quoting Psalm 16. So before where he said men of, of Judea, now he says men of Israel. He's answering the question, why are you drunk? He says, no, no, no. This Jesus, Jesus of, man, uh, of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonder and signs that God did through your midst as you yourself. No, he's saying those miracles that you saw in Jesus's day were predicted in the, in the book of Joel and in the prophets. What he's now saying is that God has a plan. If you watch the debate, Biden kept coming at Trump and saying, you have no plan, you have no plan, you have no plan. Sorry for the political analogy, but what Peter is doing is saying, everything that happened to Jesus, as wicked as it was, was planned by God. This is that, but also this entire thing was planned. And you're going to hear some of the mysterious mingling of God's plan plus human responsibility. He says, you crucified and killed, but God had planned it. And he says in verse 23, he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, that is by the Roman soldiers, but also by the Jews who were defying their own law. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then it says, but God raised him up. You see, it was God's plan to raise him up. That's what it's saying. 
Come on, can I get an amen out there? Please, church, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This happened, he says, by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Isn't that amazing? But what he's saying is that it wasn't possible for Jesus to be held by the pangs of death, that he eluded death. Gives this quotation here. What he's saying is that Jesus did not give himself over to decay while he was in the grave and he's walking through death and then burial and then resurrection and then ascension is what he's doing. He quotes David. He quotes him in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And here's what it says. And he's speaking, David is speaking now of the ever-present presence of God. Listen to what he says. I saw the Lord always before me. The application for the believer is this, that if Christ has risen, his nearness is only just a breath away from us. Listen to what he says. I saw the Lord always before me for he's at my right hand. It's like David felt like he could reach out and touch the triune God. He's at my right hand that I might not be shaken. You put it this way, the nearness of God means the firmness of our faith in this world. read this morning with some uh, believers on the prayer call about, uh, I think it's uh, Psalm 123, about those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion that can never be moved. David is saying that God's nearness means his firmness. And then he says, therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. He's saying the nearness of God means the gladness of his heart. As I talk to people in the midst of COVID, there is so much discouragement, so much despondency, so much despair, so much hurt, so much loneliness. And I just long for this kind of nearness that brings not just firmness, but brings gladness. Listen to that. Therefore, my heart was glad. Why? Because the Lord was near. He was at at hand, like Philippians chapter four says, uh, says the Lord is at hand. He's right there. The nearness brings gladness, firmness, and then hope. My flesh will also dwell in hope. Why? Because of the resurrection. So our, our sense of firmness, our sense of gladness, our sense of hope is not rooted in the circumstances of this world, but the final solution that Christ gave us when he rose from the dead. Here's what it says. For he will not abandon my soul to Haiti, nor or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. In other words, we have now this tiny taste of gladness in this world, but there is a day coming when the, the path of life is open to us and we experience the fullness and the gladness of the Lord. This is it. This happened, this crucifixion of Jesus happened according to the definite plan of God. This is that because this was predicted, this was planned because God had a way out of the horror of this world and the horror of sin. Mark Sayers in his new book uh, called Reappearing Church mentions how countercultural gladness is. And if you think of it, it speaks of how it's commanded over four or five times in the book of Colossians alone. How countercultural it is to be able to sing to the Lord with 
praises and we are not glad. We don't seek his gladness. And part of it is this digital capitalism that has been imposed upon us so that we live not just only in this world, but a second sort of virtual world as well. We're caught in this kind of matrix and we got to take the roof off and see that the resurrected one is near, that he's at our right hand. Friends, the fact that Jesus escaped from the pangs of death should give you a sense of his nearness, should give you a sense of confidence, of firmness, of gladness, no matter what happens in the world and of hope. This is that. This was planned. The features of the Messianic age were planned beforehand, and the coming of the Spirit is the confirmation of that. And then the third thing he says is not just this is that or this was planned, but this is he. This is the one that we have been waiting for. Let me show you that. Nice. We sang a little bit ago, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, the makers, the maker of heaven and earth. And what we're finding in this passage is that the name of the maker of heaven and earth is not some anonymous name. That it's the historical name of the person of Jesus. That this is he, the name of our help is Yeshua. The name of our help is, is Joshua, so to speak. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus Messiah. That is the name of our help in this world. So what Peter's about to do is, is to show that all who call upon the name of this one who was born in the flesh, but is also God, they will be saved. Let's take a look at verses 29 to 36, where he says, this is he, this is that, this was planned, and this is he, verses 29 to 36. Brothers, this is his third appeal to his listeners, I may say to you with confidence, can you speak with confidence about what Peter is about to say? I speak to you with confidence that the patriarch David, it's a bad word in our culture today, but what we're about to see is there's a kind of subversive patriarchy that is what Jesus embodies. The patriarch David both died, mentions three things here. He died, he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, he's saying, guess what? David is still dead. David is still in the tomb. David is in the grave, but not his offspring, not his descendant. In other words, he tells us that there was a promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that some, one of his offspring would be on the throne forever. Now, how is it possible that one of David's offspring could be on the throne forever? And the answer is he would defeat death. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, that is David, knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many, many people misread the scriptures because they believe that it is a book of rules, a book of laws, and it's actually a book about this incredible, amazing person that gave his life for us, whose name is Jesus and his title is Christ or Messiah. And here's what he says, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see, with, see corruption. In other words, when Christ was in the grave and they placed him in the grave, Nothing happened to his cells. Nothing happened to his organs. They did not begin to decay because 
God was keeping him for the third day. Jesus was crucified according to the plan, but God raised him up. Verse 32, this Jesus, God raised up, and of this, Peter and the others are all witnesses. And then he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this out. He's drawing everything together now. He's saying, this was that, and this was planned, and this is he. This Jesus was crucified according to the plan, and this Jesus was raised according to God's plan, and this Jesus pours out his spirit according to God's plan. And you, my friends, can have the baptism and fullness of the Spirit who unites all people together. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus secures the the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and begins this new messianic age. And then he says, and now Jesus doesn't just ascend. He doesn't just die. He's not just buried. He's not just crucified, but he also reigns. He sits back and reclines. The best way I can illustrate this is uh, the, the verse 35 contains the word footstool. I don't know if you've ever, when I was growing up, there was one footstool in my living room. And which I have a lot of brothers and sisters. Whoever got to sit down first got to bring the footstool over near themselves and got to sort of recline. This is what you do when you're watching a basketball game, watching a football game, or watching a movie. You gather your, your popcorn to yourself, and you, you put your feet up. Right? You sit back, you stretch back, you recline, because everything is okay. And what David is saying in this passage, what Peter is preaching, is that there came a moment after Jesus had done his work where he just sits back and reclines and rests, and rules, and reigns. He quotes Psalm 110, for David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, that is Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What he's saying is that he sees God the Father and God the Son reigning together and the Father giving a promise to the Son, which is there's going to come a day when he would make his enemies his footstool. And then he concludes, verse 26, he says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's it. That the crucified Jesus is the crown Jesus. That the dead Jesus is the living Jesus. That the Ascended Jesus is the reclining Jesus. You see, that culture in that moment was in a moment of complete disorientation. They had no idea what what it meant that this wind was blowing, that the Holy Spirit had come in this way. And what happens in moments of disorientation is we cling, we grasp out for something, you know. Are these guys drunk? What's going on? We're looking for something firm. What are we going to lash our ship to? And what David lashes his ship to, in a sense, is that the, the resurrected one is now reclining and reigning. I don't know if you know what I was describing a footstool before. They're called Ottomans. I was just looking up the history of Ottomans for a moment. They, they, the term comes from the Ottoman Empire, where this kind of reclining 
at leisure was something that was imported into Europe. And so the Ottoman became that part where you put your feet up. But here is what's so interesting about Jesus. In the Ottoman Empire and other empires, you might actually put your feet on your enemy if you conquered them. It's a terrible image for us. But this is what I was talking about in terms of subversive patriarchy. What Jesus does is he becomes the footstool for his enemies. <laughs> the way that Jesus defeats his enemies is by becoming defeated on the cross. And that's why what I'm saying, the overall message is this. The Spirit comes at a key moment in history to unite the church, to empower the church through the powerful yet powerless one. You see, our culture has such a problem with patriarchy, but the kind of patriarch that Jesus is, is a serving patriarch, a, sub, a subversive patriarch. Instead of subjugating women, he surrenders and is subjugated himself in order to empower women, in order to power, empower slaves as well. Jesus becomes a footstool. And so I just want to ask you, as we reach this point, what, what is the name of the Lord? And are you willing to call upon the name of the Lord? Because at this point in the sermon, everything begins to change. And that's what happens in this last little section, which I'll call just change everything, verses 37 to 41. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? They're asking for some kind of action that they can take. And listen to what Peter says to them in terms of what they must do. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. The idea of repentance is this idea of changing everything. If you want salvation, if you want the blessings of the Holy Spirit, the very first thing that Peter says must be done is to repent. And has been said many times, the concept of repentance is to change one's course or even change one's mind. Oftentimes we think of it this way, that we have to turn away from our sin and turn to Christ. But in reality, what Peter calls them to do and what we must do is to turn to Christ in order to turn away from our sins. In other words, we don't actually have the power to turn away from our own sins. We need Christ. And so what Peter has been doing the whole time here is saying, reorient yourself to Christ. Reorient yourself to the risen one, to the crucified one, to the ascended one, to the reigning one. Reorient yourself to him and then be baptized. And that's what I call upon you to do today is to reorient yourself to the one who is the center of all creation, the one who surrendered himself for you. Repent and be baptized in what name? In the name of Jesus Christ. And listen to what it says. For the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says that this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord calls to themselves. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000.
thousand souls. Imagine that. This day, Peter, it says, but Peter stood up and he said these words. This is Peter who had rejected Christ. And now his nets are so full that he can hardly take in the catch of of, of making fishes of men on this day. What a glorious day for Peter to be able to say this. This isn't drunkenness. This is actually the coming of the Spirit who will unite all people to himself, old and young, men and women, every socioeconomic status and every nation under earth will be come under the power of the Holy Spirit. Praise be to God. But let me just apply it to you and then we will close. Brothers and sisters, if you want forgiveness, you must repent and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means turning to him in belief that you might have forgiveness and the fullness of the Spirit. There was a a couple that had been married for 20 years, and when they were first married, they bought a couch in their first year, saved a little bit of money. In their second year, they bought a rug, and they bought then a lamp and a mirror, and they bought, they decorated their whole very small apartment for 20 years, just buying one thing, adding a little bit here. They were not wealthy, but they were adding one little thing after another. Then one day in the 20th year of their marriage, the husband sees a couch that he likes. It was something they had talked about. And uh, he purchases this couch. They pick up the old couch and move it out and put the new couch in. As they're sitting there across and looking at the beauty of their new couch, they realize that the rug doesn't really look so good with that couch anymore. So having saved up some money, they buy a new rug. And then they realize as they look at that rug, and the couch that the lamp doesn't really match anymore. Having saved up some money, they buy a new lamp. And then they realize that the mirror doesn't match anymore. And pretty soon, because they brought in this one couch, their whole house has now been redecorated because they realize that the old things that they used to own don't fit any longer with the new things that they have brought in. And that is, friends, what repentance looks like. There is a new orientation point in that living room in the same way when Christ comes into your life, you begin to see parts of your life that need to be changed. It begins with reorienting yourself to Christ, but then it continues on a daily basis as you come into his nearness and find his firmness and find his gladness and find his hope, you realize there are parts of your life that you need to change. Martin Luther said it this way, the first of his 95 theses says this, that all of our life, our our life begins with repentance and then all of our life continues with repentance every day. And that's what it looks like when Christ comes into your life, he begins to rearrange the the furniture of your moral universe so that your politics begin to change, your morality begins to change, your devotion begins to change, your love begins to change, your gladness begins to change because you now have a new point of orientation, which is the risen Lord and the risen Christ. And so brothers and sisters, let me just conclude. This coming of the Holy Spirit marks a whole new messianic age, one that brings us nearness and gladness and 
hope and firmness of spirit because we see that the powerful one, our Lord Jesus, had become the powerless one. That the way he became the warrior who won over his enemies was by becoming the wounded one who submitted and surrenders to his enemies. There is a new force in this world today in the power of the Spirit, which is not to be spiteful, but to be Spirit-led, which is not to be bitter, but to bless our enemies, which is not to have vitriol in our hearts, but to look to the victory of Christ, who has made his enemies his footstool by becoming the servant of all, becoming the footstool. So, repent. Change your lives. Change everything. Flee from this world. Receive forgiveness. Receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit, which is for you, for your children, for all who are far off. God be praised. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you on this day for the sermon of Peter, the one who had betrayed you, now becomes the one who blesses you, the one who had rejected you, now becomes the one who exalts you. And I pray, Lord, for Holy Trinity, that we might be an authentic community with Christ at the center, with your spirit being the one who forms us. Uh, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that we can have the Holy Spirit to guide us and unify us and empower us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.